Before I get started, uh, I want to claim uh, Jesus' promise to us, his followers. his brothers and sisters, his children, that we, from Acts 1, that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and out of that we shall be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's true even in this moment. We exercise a public witness right now that Jesus is in fact alive. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. The early bird catches the worm. Don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Proverbs are never far from the human heart and mind. Regardless of culture and time, why do we remember and share quotes with each other from time to time? Why do we share challenging sentences or pithy statements? Because we find in those words something that hits us that we need to think about, and we think that those around us might benefit from it too. We hope as it impacts us, it also impacts those around us. And the shorter those statements are, the more succinct, the easier it is for us to see, remember, and share. Because, after all, brevity is the soul of wit. Proverbs are nuggets to be savored and revisited. And we see that here in the Bible's book of Proverbs. One of the things that I have always valued, hopefully in my life and actions, and not always successfully, is to take the deeper things that we see in the Bible and in life and make attempts at communicating them in graspable ways. Proverbs in general, and the book of Proverbs in the Bible specifically, is a wealth of resources for exactly that. Truth, even transcendent truth, stated in a way that makes it as simple as popping a grape tomato into your mouth or as easy as grabbing your wallet and putting it in your purse or pocket. Something tasty to savor or something easy to grab and is useful for all kinds of things in life. British Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner wrote in his opening paragraph of his commentary that there are in Proverbs, quote, details of character small enough to escape the mesh of law and the broadsides of prophets and yet decisive in personal dealings. Proverbs moves in in this realm, asking what a person is like to live with or to employ, how he manages his affairs, his time, and himself. To me, Proverbs are like little mirrors that get held up to our face from time to time because they leave the response up to us. 
Um, well, wait. Well, it's like little mirrors. In this case, the mirrors are high definition mirrors in Proverbs, but they, but Proverbs leave us hanging too. They they leave the response up to us, because in their clarity, they don't necessarily tell us completely the answer. So they leave it up to us. I think it's worth quoting the entire first paragraph of Bruce Waltke's commentary on Proverbs. It's a great summary of its importance. I've read it to some of you already, and I think it is one of the reasons why we are going through it together as a church. This is what Waltke wrote. In a world bombarded by inane cliches, trivial catchwords, and godless soundbites, the expression of true wisdom is in short supply today. The church stands alone as the receptacle and repository of the inspired tradition that carry a mandate for a holy life from ancient sages, the greatest of whom was Solomon, and from the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. As the course and bulk of biblical wisdom, the the book of Proverbs remains the model of curriculum for humanity to learn how to live under God and before humankind. As a result, it beckons the church to diligently study and application. To uncommitted youth, it serves as a stumbling stone. But to the committed youth, it is a foundation stone. End quote. Let me finish this part by quoting the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ, as Waltke calls him. Luke 21.15 says this. Jesus said, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. By the way, look up the context, not necessarily right now, of Luke 21.15. You might find it interesting, considering the times. This morning I want to look at three things in this passage. First, the incarnational nature of wisdom. Second, the elephant in the room. And third, the call of repentance, or wisdom's call, The incarnational nature, the elephant in the room, and the call of repentance. What of the incarnational nature? Look at verses 20 and 21. It says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. Two things here. Isn't it interesting that the characteristic of wisdom is given a body in these verses? And that there is audible action going on here. Now, when we read these verses and you see that the characteristic of wisdom is given a body, a female body, my usual reaction to this description is that it is some sort of metaphor, or more specifically, a personification that what Solomon and God, and ultimately God, is doing here is try to communicate the idea of wisdom in a way that is more graspable, more understandable to our minds, our limited and finite minds. Uh, a metaphor is defined as a figure of speech in which a term or a phrase is applied to something to which it is not literally applicable in order to suggest a resemblance. Personification is similar in that it is representing a thing as a human being for argument's sake or rhetorical reasons. So in these verses, this personification metaphor being described here is a woman speaking. And this is uh, done to suggest that wisdom is something real and present. Wisdom is like a woman speaking, but not an actual woman speaking. 
Now this makes sense, and I'm glad that the language here is such that it is to help me and us understand it more clearly. But with this idea that wisdom is like a woman, I want to say two things. What Lady Wisdom is saying here seems to be said with the authority of God. Look especially at the verse where wisdom calls for repentance Repentance in verses 23 and 33. And what she will do if repentance is done. We'll look at that more later. But this seems like Lady Wisdom is speaking as if she has intimate knowledge of God's character. Could this not be God's character of wisdom speaking out as feminine? With that, let me speak to the men present. The males. It is clear from the Bible that God is called a he in his book. All three persons of the Godhead are called he. But this is the same God whose book in the first chapters says male and female, he created them. If you think God being called a he somehow gives you a better position than our female counterparts in the grand scheme of this existence, then you need to do some reflecting. And I suggest you use the scriptures as your guide. To the women present, the females, I want to say this. It is clear from the Bible that God is called a he in his book. All three persons of the Godhead are called he. One is even a physical he. If you think that this positions you or makes you lesser, or that it gives you the right to undermine biblical truth regarding the other half of the population, then you need to do some reflecting, and I suggest you use the scriptures as your guide. Ladies, sisters, extra note. Name me one place where Jesus the Christ acted in a way that undermined the welfare of women. One of the most profound observations shared by my pastor in New York City was when he said that Jesus showed his view of women after his resurrection when he appeared to women first. The first members of the church were women. Swallow that, gentlemen. To all of us, male and female, I say this. It seems to me that in the scriptures, even indicated here in Proverbs, that there are two genders, two sexes, male and female. If we think this gives us permission to be ungracious in our interactions with those who don't believe this, or are struggling with their identities, then we need to do some reflecting, letting the scriptures be our guide. And to those who are currently struggling with these issues of gender and identity, let me suggest a place to start some reflection using the scripture as your guide. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says this, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When I've interacted or read about people who struggle with identity, gender identity, they talk about it being a great burden. They need to go to Jesus. Seek him. Follow him. 
and asked to carry his bag. One other thing related to the personification of wisdom is what it tells us about the nature of wisdom. When I read this part, it was clear to me that wisdom is not something esoteric or completely incomprehensible. The fact that the personification of wisdom is done here tells me that wisdom is very much physical. It is incarnational. In order for wisdom to actually be wisdom, it has to be done bodily. It has to be acted. It has to be lived. And this is great for us human beings because we are, in fact, physical beings. We are embodied individuals in a community made up of actual matter. Therefore, if anything is to have merit for us to have actual grit, it has to be physical. And wisdom here is introduced in a physical manner. A quick example here. I recently read an interview with Anglican vicar and poet Malcolm Gate, whose poems I've read quite often from up here, about the relationship between imagination, out there, in here, out there, and incarnation. The, the, uh, the relationship between ideas and physicalness. That this relationship is not something we can escape. Even when we think about ideas, any idea, and then begin to communicate it or talk about it, we use physical language. And we can't help it. Think about this. Here in church, we talk about transcendent things, things way above, things of God which are big unseen ideas. You read about them. They're big unseen ideas. But we also talk about things here on earth, down here. We call those ordinary, ordinary things. The words also used in the Bible are things like heavenly and earthly. The phrase heaven and earth, heaven up there, earth down here. You notice here, as I described this to you, I had to use physical language. Heaven up there, earth down here. Up high, down here, unseen, seen. We can't escape this. We talk about being in love. We talk about a face, when angry, being red with anger. We use the word depressed to describe a state of mind. We can't escape this. And this is true of what Solomon is doing in this passage. Wisdom, in order to be really wisdom, has to be incarnational. And this passage is, and in this passage, wisdom is screaming. Which leads me to my second observation about verses 20 and 21. Noisy wisdom. When I first read this, I was slightly perplexed by Lady Wisdom making so much noise. Take a moment. Shh. Listen. Do you hear anything? Me either. If Lady Wisdom is saying anything to the same level as is talked about in this passage, crying aloud, raising her voice, speaking at the gate, then we must be missing something. I don't hear her right now, physically. So what exactly is going on here? I had to ask, did Wisdom sound different in the day of Solomon than it does today? And, or is there something about Wisdom that we aren't getting? And I suspect it's this latter. We aren't getting something. Because the reason that I think wisdom is no different back in the day of Solomon than it is today is because the source of wisdom has been the same since the time of Solomon and before, and that is God. 
Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. James 1, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If God is the source of all wisdom, and he does not change, then neither does wisdom. So why is Lady Wisdom so noisy? Perhaps for two reasons. One, she has something important to say. And two, perhaps she has seen something that makes her have to speak up. The first of having something important to say in my mind is unquestionable. The true, good, and beautiful, real truth is always communicating. In verse 21, it says, At the entrance of the gate she speaks. Now, why at the gates? If you do a search in the Old Testament, you see the importance of a gate to a city. It was the place where people traveled in and out. But it was also the place where authorities in the city would sit, hear disputes, and issue judgments. So wisdom not only passes through the streets and the squares of the populace calling out her concerns, but she is also taking it to the gates of the city in order to be, to be sure everyone hears her. And that also is not just the populist, but also the leadership hears her as well. This is a good word for both lay people and leaders in a church. Wisdom is for everyone and to be heard by everyone, regardless of station in life, for the commoner and the elite. My second point here is regarding what has made wisdom have to shout and speak up. Why is she being so loud? Perhaps Lady Wisdom was seeing stuff she did not like. Perhaps she was seeing actions not in keeping with following God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the whole point of the book. And perhaps she was seeing so much of it, it makes her speak up. But we can't hear her. I hear nothing of her cry physically right now. But, but I have to ask, really? Do we really not hear her? Let me ask this. Are there things that can be clearly and powerfully communicated and yet remain silent? Are there things that can be clearly and powerfully communicated and yet remain silent? Romans 1, 19 and 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. How is it possible to clearly see invisible things? Because even invisible things can be real. How is it possible? Think about that. Maybe that's where wisdom is screaming. Do we have the ears to hear it? Perhaps wisdom is screaming because there's a lot of pain present. Whether self-inflicted or inflicted by others. C.S. Lewis once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Maybe 
She's screaming because people are in pain, whether physical or spiritual. So wisdom, to be truly wisdom, is incarnational. It is present with everyone. And at times, it shouts. Let me look at the elephant in the room. I'll read verses 22 and 24 and 32. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Because I have called you, called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when, uh, or I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then you will call. They, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroy them. destroys them. When we say there's an elephant in a room, we usually mean there's something happening, an action or an idea out there that everyone sees, they're uncomfortable with it, but they don't want to talk about it. And that could be the case here. But I think we need to look at, at least look at this elephant, even if we don't completely understand it. And that elephant is the apparent meanness, and possibly God, of Lady Wisdom. She laughs and mocks. She doesn't answer when someone is calling out for help, when in distress and anguish. What? And she is even avoiding being found when looked for. Ow. Lady Wisdom seems to be here acting like a real, well, for sensibilities, female dog. Why does it have seemed like she's acting like this? What is going on here? My honest answer is this. I am not completely sure. Well, then perhaps we could argue that this is just, this is Lady Wisdom and it's not God. But that is a weak argument because these words are in God's word, first of all, and they sound strangely Strangely like things he himself would say in calling people to repentance and chastising them in their complacency and wickedness. Besides, in other places, God laughs and mocks and derides. It's there. Psalm 2, Psalm 37, Psalm 59, and in Job 9 are examples of God laughing, deriding. So how do we reconcile this with God's love and mercy and his compassion? I'm not sure that we're supposed to. And I'm not sure we can. Nor am I sure I want to. When I found that uh, Job chapter 9 verse of about God mocking, this Job's in, out of Job's mouth, my eye skimmed further up the page to the first verses of Job, Job 9, and they say this. This is Job speaking. But how can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. 
Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, or who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes me by and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? I'm not going to apologize for something God does. If I feel I need to say that I'm sorry on behalf of God, then that might indicate I might think God is wrong. And I'm not sure he is wrong here. I just don't understand this passage completely. I'm not trying to excuse God or myself from answering this difficult question. I'm merely telling you as much as I understand, and I wouldn't expect anything more or less from you as well. But even with that, let me make a few observations about these verses. Even as, even as my lack of understanding and perhaps your lack of understanding hovers, let's, I want to make these observations. First, to help temper our understanding, let's call this, uh, this observation the weight of numbers. If we were to list all the places where God mocks and laughs at people in the Bible, next to a list where he talks about his love, patience, and kindness towards people, I think we would see a huge disparity. My, ma- my wager would be that verses about his love far outweigh his verses about he- where he's mocking and laughing. Psalm 86 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and, ste- and faithfulness. Notice it doesn't say, and you never get angry. <laughs> it says slow to anger. That means there is a point. But it's very slow to get there with God. Second observation, for the apparent meanness of Lady Wisdom. Derek Kidner mentioned this in his commentary about the mockery. Seems to be in the choice of the fool, the foolish choice, but not in the fate of the fool. But the fate of the fool is in the balance here, isn't it? Verse 28, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. These are harsh and ultimate words, almost eternal, in fact. I think they are referring to an eternal consequence. Think about it this way. What can God do with someone he clearly calls... What does, he do when, what does he do with somebody he clearly calls? What does he do when there is no hiding the fact that he's calling them? So he clearly calls. We can see that he's clearly calling. And yet they refuse to respond. What has God to do with that? Now, there are options. He could force them to believe, right? He clearly communicates to them. We all... Not just them, but we can see it. But they refuse to respond to it. Now, God could force his will on them, right? He could force them to respond. 
Because it's better to be forced to spend eternity with him than away with him, right? But is that really love? Love that is not a choice? The harsh words here are not mockery, but absolute reality, eternal reality. If someone refuses to respond to God's calling, then they, as my dad would constantly tell me, live with the consequences of their choices. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, it can be known, is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is why I put the Romans passage in here as well. We need to see with clarity that we make choices that God will respect, even if he doesn't want to. Go back and read these passages together and tell me they don't echo each other. But is all hope and love lost in this passage of Proverbs? I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, absolutely not. And this brings me to my last point, the call of repentance. Wisdom's call. So before we slip God the don't be the hater card, we need to look at the places here where he does extend grace. Verses 23 and 33. 23. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Verse 33. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Even in the midst of the mockery and laughter, there is still hope. A way of hope offered. Turn, and I will give you my spirit and my words. Listen, and you will be at ease and secure. Will you listen? Will we listen? Or will we go on suppressing the truth in our sin? Will we go on ignoring wisdom as she shouts, screams, begs, cajoles? The greatest of wisdom's shouts was a spectacle that occurred on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago at a place called Golgotha, place of the skull. We see it here in these verses. In these verses, we see this here. Look, verse 27 to 28, look at that. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Do you see it? It's there. Golgotha is there. No? Okay, let's help. Let's look at God's word to help us. Matthew 27, 45 and 46, 50 and 51. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks split. Did God answer him? No. 
Sure looked like a calamity, didn't it? The temple, ter- <laughs> the temple curtain tour. The earth shook, rocks split. It, was a, it seemed like a calamity. You see it now? Was it deserved? Was this deserved? No. And that's the spectacle. It was not deserved. And that is why Jesus is all throughout these verses of Proverbs. Let me read it. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Did, did Jesus scoff? Did he hate knowledge? I don't see that. You look at how he was raised. He was raised in the knowledge of the Lord. Verse 24. Because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Did Jesus refuse to listen to the Father or heed his call? No. Because you have ignored my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Did Jesus ignore the Father's counsel or ignore reproof? Did he even need reproof? Skip down to verse 29. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Did Jesus do any of these things? Hate knowledge, fear, uh, not fear the Lord? Have none of God's counsel, despise reproof? No. He did not. And yet, wisdom says they shall therefore eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and their complaints and the complacency of fools destroy them. Was Jesus simple and killed by his turning away? No. Was he complacent like a fool? And destroyed? Well, he wasn't a fool, but he was killed. And he was destroyed. But he didn't do any of those things. Second Corinthians five, twenty one, the Apostle Paul wrote. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you not see Christ in these verses? You think God's mockery here is for the foolish only? God sent his son uh, to take the very place of the very fools he's talking about here in Proverbs. Chapter 1, verses 20 through 33. Do you see that? Do we hear it? If you are a friend or neighbor who does not know Jesus, then I invite you to tilt your head and listen. I invite you to open your eyes and look at the world around you. Even in all its brokenness and scarring, wisdom calls. T.S. Eliot wrote in the last stanzas of his poem, Lydia Gidding, these lines. With the drawling of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. 
And later, Eliot writes these lines. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Heed this call, friend, neighbor, all will be well. All manner of thing will be well. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. For my brothers and sisters, those who have heard the voice and heeded wisdom's call, remember it. Drink it like a glass of water on a hot day. Preach this message to yourself daily and to your brothers and sisters around you. But then also offer that glass of water to your neighbor in need. Invite them to listen for this call. Not just the call, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also, his last call. When he said, it is finished. Because, brothers and sisters, it is in fact finished. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for calling us. And you keep calling us. You are shouting wisdom. And the biggest shout was from the top of the hill of Golgotha. Pray that you would help us heed that call daily, every moment of our lives. And we invite our brothers and sisters to do the same. And for those, Lord, that don't know you, use us as instruments of the call of wisdom. Help us to do it in engaging and compassionate ways. Help us to understand even the hard ways that you communicate. That the true laughter and mockery and derision was something you yourself took upon when you were derided and mocked when you shouldn't have been. Help us to remember that. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.